This is the City Church Life on Life podcast, where the goal is to see lives transformed through vulnerable life on life relationships, learning alongside each other how to live the new life Jesus offers us. There was a popular book a few years back called Every Man's Battle. It's about pornography and its widespread use and debilitating effects, and the stats are eye-popping, but I'd like to suggest there is another more pervasive, pernicious struggle that we could call every human's battle. There are different names for the Ten Commandments, but the one preferred by the Jewish tradition is the Ten Words, and that's a revealing phrase, as if God were distilling down into ten words how life is meant to be lived. And who would be qualified to distill down into ten words? Uh, Such a question for all people in all places. How should I live? Well, uh, that's a wonderful way to think about the Ten Commandments. This is God's wisdom distilled into ten words. But listen to how it opens. Uh, Here are the opening words of what we call the Ten Commandments uh, from Exodus chapter chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. So that's the first two commandments. And you could summarize uh, the first commandment, no other God. And the second commandment, no idols. And an idol is a representation of another God. So think about that. God is saying, I've only got ten things to tell you, ten words. Number one, no other gods. Number two, no other gods. Think about that. He's only going to use ten words, and we could dare to say God repeats himself. It's helpful to remember the historical context. After more than 400 years of slavery, the people of Israel came out of Egypt, one of the most polytheistic cultures that ever existed. Before this, other nations or other cultures were willing to say their God was number one, but no one ever dared say their God was the only one. And that's what made the Jewish people unique in the ancient world, monotheism. And yet, notice carefully, the text does not say there are no other gods. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. But if God's the only God, why does God speak of other gods as as if they exist? What's the point of telling us not to have any others if there aren't any other gods to begin with? That's a puzzle. And the answer to our puzzle is that other gods, counterfeit gods, nevertheless hold real living power over their worshipers. They might be made with human hands, but they hold power over human lives. Though these words were written roughly 3,000 years ago, please don't make the mistake of thinking these are just emblematic of a more primitive time. We imagine today that we are in control of ourselves, but we are in fact controlled by the other gods that we worship. If you worship approval or fear disapproval, you are controlled by your need of other people's approval. Martin Luther, in his commentary on the first commandment, put it as well as anyone, whatever your heart clings to, relies upon, and rests in, that is properly your God. Whatever your heart clings to, relies upon, and rests in, that is properly your God. The second commandment then calls these gods other gods, idols. And again, to our ears, idolatry brings to mind ancient peoples bowing down before stone statues. 
But the biblical teaching about idolatry is sophisticated and it's enduring. Ancient Athens may have had its statues to Aphrodite and Artemis, but today's America is not so different. We, we too have our altars where we worship and where sacrifices must be made. What is an idol? Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, defines it this way. What is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can. Anything so desired by you that life hardly seems worth living without it. It's where your energies and passions, your resources, your emotional and financial resources, it's where they effortlessly flow to. In his essay, Idols of the Heart, David Pallison writes, The most basic question which God poses to each human heart, has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, delight? To who or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success? Pallison says, questions like these tease out whom we serve, whether we serve God or idols. In ancient days, idol worship might have been easier to see, but today the idols are set up in our hearts. They're fabricated, still fabricated, to meet our own deep emotional needs. We too serve our idols, and we don't just serve them, we become enslaved to them. What makes them so deceptive is that our idols are almost always good, good things. The human heart takes good things like love or successful career or family or the need to be needed. Those are good things, but we take those good things and we make them into ultimate things. And when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, there you have an idol. Idolatry exists when we look to these substitutes to give us what only God can. These core needs of significance, security, belonging, worth, now, who worships idols? John Calvin, John Calvin famously said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. And this is not a uniquely Christian observation. Frederick Nietzsche wrote, there are more idols in the world than there are realities. This is an enduring human concern. Maybe that's why God says, I only have 10 words. Number one, no other gods. Number two, no other gods. See, it's not a question of what you profess to believe. The first two commandments are probing a deeper question. They're asking us what we love and what we desire, what our heart clings to, relies upon, and rests in. So it's good to pause and ask ourselves, do you know what your other gods are? I'll give you two tests. The first you could call the what makes you feel alive test. Chris Everett won 18 Grand Slam titles, but when it came time to quit... Everett said, I have no idea. I, ha I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins. I needed the applause in order to have an identity. You can hear it in her words, the need to win made her feel alive. A friend of mine whose life was blown up when his secret addiction was exposed explained, my life was built on two premises, 
The first one was that I can control your opinion and approval of me through my performance. And the second was that that was all that mattered in life. Both of these brave souls are confessing, I had to have this to feel alive, or at least to relieve the pain of not feeling alive. Some turn to alcohol or pills, some turn to shopping, others to exercise, some to money or financial security. The third century writer Origen put it, what each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. Whatever you esteem more than the true God, this is the rival God that has set up an altar in your heart. Other gods don't present themselves as rivals. They just present themselves as good, worthy objects of our attention. And they are. For example, the desire to have meaningful work, to have a vibrant family. These are good things. Here's one of life's most important lessons, however. The enemy of the best is the good. Breaking Bad is one of the most acclaimed uh, shows in the history of television. We may not think we have much in common with Walter White, the chemistry teacher turned meth dealer who breaks bad to meet his family's escalating medical bills. But in the climactic scene of the whole series, Walter uh, has had what you might call a moment of clarity. For years, Walter has lied to himself, telling himself, I'm doing this for my family. But in the series finale, he finally sees clearly, and here's what he says, I did it for me. I liked it, and I was good at it. And I was really alive. There you hear it. What is your heart resting upon to make you feel fully alive? That's one test. Here's one more revealing test. What is your little hell? What's your little hell? What would you hate more than anything else? What would be your own little private hell? Being average, being poor, being ugly, being incapacitated, losing your family, losing your reputation? The loss of an idol will feel like hell. So identifying your little hell can help you diagnose your idol. For example, Madonna once said, all of my life, all of my will has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with this fear. I push past one spell and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think, no, I'm mediocre. And this happens again and again. My life <clears throat> is built upon this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me. It's pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. You can hear it. Her little hell is being mediocre. Her little hell is not being special. And she says, I'm always struggling with this fear. She's so honest. How about you? Do you know what your little hell is? Well, here's a way to spot it. Where do you find yourself getting overly angry or afraid or anxious? It's most often because one of your other gods is being threatened. That's most often why we get angry what we think we need to feel good about ourselves is being threatened. And underneath so much of our anger is an idol being threatened. That's why we fret and fear, because we're so afraid of losing what we feel we must have to be happy. Our emotions run deeper than our convictions. So it's important to pay attention to your emotions as they're very useful diagnostic tools. Admittedly, these little tests can be hard for us because they expose that very often the Lord of our lives is not who we think it is. 
but rather the Lord of our lives is a rival God whose worship makes our lives incredibly unstable. There's a great word for this in the New Testament. In James 1.8, the text says, a double-minded man is unstable in all, he, in all his ways. And the word for double-minded, you can hear it in Greek, is the word dysikos. Dysikos, two psyches, a divided heart, a double-minded man, a heart divided between the God you profess and the God you really worship, cling to, rely upon, and rest in. It makes you double-minded, unstable in all your ways. See, we may be going to church saying we trust God, but as long as <clears throat> that enables us to serve our, our, our rival God, our, who's our real God, everything's fine. But as soon as our dreams get dashed or our plans get interrupted, we can turn on the true God in anger. We get remarkably unstable. Because God, what got revealed is that our heart was not rooted in the true God. It was relying and resting elsewhere. See, maybe you think to yourself, oh, I, I, I've heard a sermon like this before. Well, I have too. And my question for both of us is, why do we still rest in and rely upon other gods? What are we supposed to do about these other gods? Well, first, we must root them out relentlessly. Relentlessly, You root them out by doing something very difficult. You recognize your emotions and you look underneath your emotions. Now that's hard for us, especially men, who may not even know how we feel and who may have been trained to suppress our emotions. And while it's true that we're not meant to be led by our emotions, at the same time, most of us have been misled into minimizing or ignoring them altogether. Because distressing emotions like anger, sadness, fear, anxiety, impatience, helplessness, a critical spirit, remorse, shame, guilt, loneliness, those are, you could say, like dashboard lights of your heart. When you feel those things, they're alerting you to the fact that something is off. Your idols are being threatened. The thing that you use to meet your emotional needs or suppress your pain, that's in danger. And you have, to, you have to recognize these emotions. Recognize them, name them, but then you root them out, and you root them out by picking these emotions up and examining the underlying root system. Because underneath those distressing emotions, you will almost always find your clinging idols. Like brushing your teeth, this is not a one-time obligation. This is a mandatory part of what you could call spiritual hygiene. You keep, uh, you, you keep rooting your idols out by paying attention to and examining your emotions. You can also look underneath your more obvious sins because one of the most original teachings of the Bible is that idolatry is actually the root sin underneath every other sin in your life. Martin Luther pointed this out. He pointed out when we break any of the commandments, it's always only because we've broken the first commandment first. We never break any commandment without breaking the first one first, having another God. So take any commandment. Take the ninth commandment. Don't bear false witness. Why does anyone ever lie? To protect something, often ourselves. We've made something, maybe human approval, maybe our reputation, we've made that more important to our hearts than God's grace. So we break the ninth, but we only break the ninth because we've broken the first. So to deal with our idols, first you root them out relentlessly. Second, we consciously turn from them. We consciously turn from them. And we do this by confessing our idolatry. 
uh, but also acknowledging how harmful and ineffective our idols can be. The enemy of the best is the good, but these good substitutes can never give me what I'm asking them to give me. Your idols can never deliver on their empty promises to satisfy you. They promise you freedom, but they only make you more enslaved. Elizabeth Eric Browning, the poet, in her poem, Idols, put it this way, how weak the gods of this world are, and weaker yet their worship made me. Our pursuit of idols always weakens us, not because they are not good, but because they're not good enough. Our rival gods cannot bear the weight of our desires. That was the benefit of living in Los Angeles where so many people moved to make it to get famous or grow rich, or grow rich was having a front row seat to some of the people who really did, in the world's eyes, make it. They achieved more money, more fame, more accolades than most of us could ever imagine. Perhaps you've heard the Jim Carrey quote, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. I saw that up close and personal. In some measure, I lived it. That the most disappointing day in a person's life may be the day after they achieve what they've always been pursuing. See Michael Phelps' documentary, The Weight of Gold, about the spate of suicides among world-class Olympic athletes. Or watch the HBO documentary on Tiger Woods. Sometimes we have to see firsthand the emptiness of our own earthly schemes to achieve peace and joy. But we can also learn from others, and we can save ourselves the pain of some of that disappointment by consciously turning away from our idols. Jonah 2.8 says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Boy, when that hits your heart, could be. Why am I holding on to these other gods that are causing me to forfeit the grace that could be mine? Why am I holding on to these gods that can never deliver on their promise and will never give me rest? The pain of letting them go often feels like death because we've held on to them for dear life. But you finally come to the point where the pain of staying the way you are, the pain of staying the way you are is greater than any pain that change may require. It may take God ripping these idols from your miserable hands because you couldn't let them go. Sometimes God in His mercy removes them. That's grace. Insight, identifying and naming your idols is not enough. Insight, I can't say this strongly enough, is not transformational. It may even delay your healing if you think that's the finish line and quit after you've identified your idols. No, that's just the beginning. The real work of standing firm in the grace of God comes from habitually, consciously turning away. For a lot of people, that will look like recognizing that the story you've been telling yourself your whole life about what makes you, you, and what makes life worth living, that this story has been a big fat lie. You have your moment of clarity. And it's incredibly disorienting. You'll think, what's happening to me? Well, your, your false foundation is crumbling. You see the weakness of your idols and how weak their worship has made you. And you begin to consciously turn away from those idols. I'm not talking about the pills or the work or the food or the liquor, but what led you to those counterfeit gods in the first place? What were you medicating? And it hits your heart so hard that so much of what you just call your personality was really just an ingrained strategy to try and meet your own deep emotional needs. 
When those strategies are finally mercifully exposed, then, like Jonah and the whale, you can say, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace. They forfeit the love of God that could be theirs. So you consciously turn away from your idols because you see they can't deliver. Third, you slowly learn to live into the new story, the new story of who you really are in Christ. When God says you have no other gods before me, he's not trying to tell us where he falls in the rankings. God is telling us that God demands our absolute trust and our exclusive loyalty. Anytime we serve another God, we are elevating a rival over the one true God. We are giving glory to another. And if God is God, you might ask, well, why does God care? Why is God jealous, as the ten words go on to say? If the ten words are life as God intended it to be lived, why does God make worship of God central to our flourishing? Well, think of it this way. It's because God loves us. He alone is God. He is the highest good, He is the most beautiful, and He is the only one who is always true. Therefore, to allow us to be satisfied with anything less than Himself would be His allowing us, would be Him allowing those whom He loves to settle for less than the good and beautiful life that our Maker intends for us. God, the one who made us for Himself, is telling our fretful hearts, Worship me first. Worship me alone because I am the only one worth your heart's desire because I'm the only one who can satisfy your soul. See, it's because God loves us that God commands us. You can't see this in English, but the you in these commands, as in you shall not, is not second person plural. Almost always in the Bible when the community of God is addressed, it's the second person plural, y'all, we'd say. Here, here, though, it's the second person singular, you. And the Hebrew ear would have heard it. God's talking to me. This is the king of the universe addressing you. And he's saying, first, first, no other gods. Second, no other gods. Now, I wonder if you've ever looked at the Ten Commandments this way, that God's law is not so much a rule. God's law is an expression of his love. It's because God loves us that God commands us such that when we break a commandment, it's not that we break a rule, we break the heart of the one who loves us most. Do you see what a great God we have? But if we read these commandments honestly, we think, I can't ever keep these. Not even one, not even for one day. The only one who ever kept the first commandment perfectly is Jesus. What did his heart cling to, rely upon, and rest in? His Father's will. That's what made Jesus alive, being perfectly obedient to his Father. And Jesus didn't just fear a little hell. He endured being separated from his Father's love so that we might know we never will be. The first commandment, rather than terrifying us for our failures to keep it, ought to drive us deeper and deeper into the arms of the only one who ever has kept it. And he kept it for us, the only one in whose arms we can find rest. And Jesus then sends us out as his forgiven people with a new resolve to keep what he has commanded for his glory and for our good because we finally see that those happen to be the very same thing, God's glory and our good. And I say again, how great is our God because he loves us, he commands us to serve him before all others. 
before all other masters because Jesus is the only master who will set you free. He's the only master who can forgive you when you fail him. Your career, your work will not forgive you when you fail. Our Father knows we're so afraid. And our God's love is the only love whose love casts out all fears. Other gods cannot cast out our fear because they don't love us. They only prop us up for so long as we don't disappoint them, which makes us live in fear that we will disappoint them. But it's only the perfect love of Jesus who says, I will never, no, not ever leave you, even when you turn to other gods. That's perfect love, and only that can cast out our fear. So first, put Jesus first. Second, put Jesus first. Make this your prayer. Reign in my heart, Jesus, without a rival. Unite my heart to fear your name. See, the false narrative says you have to prove you're somebody, so train your soul. Train your soul to replace that false narrative, that you have to prove you are somebody. Train it with the new story of the gospel, which says, God has justified my life by grace alone. There is nothing left but to let yourself be loved and live out of that love. No longer working for approval, but working from approval. And then you can obey these commandments, not to become lovable or earn love, but because you're already loved. Now that's how you move from fear to freedom. It is possible. I'll see you next week.